Well, it's, uh, I think with Scott and I, it's 32 or 33 years. I actually had the privilege of baptizing Patty Artavanis in the ocean. Uh, that's right. And, uh, and you forgot Tracy's at our church, his sister, but he doesn't care about his sister. That's why he forgot about it. So yeah, it just happened. But, uh, yeah, we're kind of connected and, uh, Scott is, I consider Scott, I'm not saying this. I do not say this when I go places. Trust me. God is my witness. Scott's one of the best preachers on the planet. I, I would consider him one of the top 10 in our day. Uh, you are so blessed to have him. Patty's a godly woman. I don't know how she manages those kids, but she's got investment going on, and they're, they're rocking the world for the, the kingdom, and they're tremendous and such an incredible blessing to our church as well as our own personal lives. So you're blessed to have them as well. So it's really an honor to be here. And I, I would come back anytime Scotty asked me if I can come, I'm coming. But it's just a great, great joy to be here tonight because I want to talk to you a little bit about something that, that is uh, really outside the box when we begin to think about Jesus Christ. And I wanted to ask you this fundamental question as we started, and that is this. Can you remember a time when you were under incredible pressure, incredible pressure? Uh, now think about that for a minute. Not, not scuba diving, not that kind of pressure, and not, uh, you know, a, a dog pile uh, on the football field or, or the, uh, the sense when your kids are jumping on you. That not, but the pressure of a trial, the pressure of, of a stress, uh, the pressure of a difficulty that was so overwhelming. Think about that for a second. Try to get that fixed in your mind if you can, just for a moment. And then I want you to understand that that pressure is nothing compared to the pressure that Lady Twinkletoes experienced. You say, who's Lady Twinkletoes? I'm glad you asked that question. Well, she's a dark, elusive beauty being delivered to the Los Angeles Zoo. You see, Lady Twinkletoes is a black rhinoceros, and I want to tell you a little bit about her. Gary Richmond was a zookeeper, as a friend of mine, at the L.A. Zoo, who later served as a pastor at a church I attended, and he wrote about his experiences as a zookeeper called a book, A View from the Zoo. And he writes in one chapter describing the arrival of Lady Twinkletoes and the unique pressure of that moment, an incredible moment. First of all, you've got to understand, to get to the zoo, this rhinoceros had to travel by uh, a, a boat uh, to get sailed to the situation, then loaded on a crate onto a truck and driven 40 miles through the L.A. freeway system to get to the zoo. And then they had to basically, with all these new noises and with all these sm smells, she wanted out of her crate and she wanted out of her crate now. So the stress is rising. They all know she wanted out of her crate because she began ramming the door of her massive crate so hard that the crate began to crack and splinter around the hinges. Well, that caused the zookeepers to move a little faster, and they began to hurry. And her crate, though, was so large, they had to use a crane to get it actually into the rhinoceros pit. So they raised her up about 17 feet high to lift her over the wall and over the moat to get into the particular rhinoceros area. And the interesting thing about it was that because... It was so high, and it took so long to get to that point uh, that Lady Twinkletoes reached her limit. She was under so much stress that she began to bang that crate uh, over and over and over and rock it violently and bash into it. And then four-by-fours began to fall into the rhinoceros area, and the entire door of the rhinoceros crate opened up. 
She's 17 feet in the air, and now everybody's in an absolute panic because all this rhinoceros has to do is step out of that crate, and it's dead. It will then be crushed by its own weight when it hits the ground at 17 feet high. So that crane operator's really moving now, and he's trying to get it down to 12 feet, and then 10 feet, and then 8 feet, and then 6 feet, and then 4 feet. And at that moment, at 4 feet, Lady Twinkentoes decided that she was now going to get out of the crate. She jumps out and just lands, crashes with a gigantic thud, and everybody holds their breath. Well, the amazing thing is that she kind of snorted and she got back up on her legs. She was undamaged at that point, but now she's trembling. Her eyes are watering. Rhinoceroses can't see very well, and she looks around in this new area, and she sees a boulder, a huge boulder, sort of the shape of a man, and she decides at 20 feet she's going to charge it at full speed. She goes after that boulder. She actually rocks the boulder from its moorings. It's cemented into place, and she collapses down, and everybody's again, what's happening? She slowly gets back up, and she goes after another boulder and rocks that boulder as well, and then she gets up a lot more slowly. And then after trembling, watering in the eyes, and all the smashing of boulders, something crazy happened. She had reached her absolute limit of pressure and stress. There was nothing more that this rhinoceros could go through because at this point, not only was she trembling, not only was there this colossal rage that she was manifesting, but then the amazing thing that happened is her entire body began to glisten red. It was just she was glowing red. And she seemed to be perspiring great drops of blood from every pore on her body. And my friend Gary turned to the vet and said, what was going on? No one had ever seen anything like this before. Well, amazingly, the doctor said this animal has reached maximum stress. Rhinos, hippos, and elephants under this kind of pressure can burst capillaries all over their bodies. And the doctor said she cannot take any more stress at all or she is now going to die she has reached her absolute limit she is an incredible danger and everybody waited to see what would happen thankfully things calmed down thankfully everyone was glad when she stopped her awesome display of fear and rage and pressure and she began to calm down and of course many of you want to know the rest of the story she lived happily at the la zoo for 34 years But amazingly, I think God designs these kind of reactions in creation, in the animal kingdom, just in creation itself, to point to something. And I want to point to something tonight. Another doctor said, his name is Luke, and he actually wrote something in the Bible, which is very significant. In Luke chapter 22, verse 44, it's there in your outline, I believe, if you look at it. And it says this, and being in agony, he was praying very fervently And his sweat became like drops of what? Blood falling down upon the ground. Have you ever considered tonight the pressure that Jesus Christ faced on the eve of his suffering and death? I mean, can you imagine? Imagine how he must have felt. How alone he felt. How stressed he was. How agonizing it was for the pure holy one, the pure holy one, to bear sin. For the perfect one to know that he was about to experience God's wrath. For the one 
the Savior was one with the Father forever in eternity past and that now is going to experience some form of separation from the Father. Tonight, we're going to swim with Jesus Christ in some very, very deep waters. Very deep. In fact, we're going to see Jesus Christ up close and very personal as he experiences a pressure far beyond anything you and I will ever face. We will never experience what Jesus Christ experienced on this night. And it foreshadows everything that he does on the cross and everything that's important to us as Christians. This is all foreshadowing. You see, Jesus Christ is going to face an unbelievable pressure. And if you're under stress tonight, if you're under some sort of trial this evening, or you're battling trust or peace or lack of contentment, then you need to be impacted by the example of Jesus Christ. If you've become indifferent about what it means to be a Christian, maybe you're just wondering where you're at with God. Maybe you're wondering what it means to have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. His sacrifice maybe has stopped warming your heart, or maybe you're tonight you're just not depending on him, you're not trusting him, and you're not believing him, or you're not recognizing that he's, he, he understands what you're going through right now, whatever it is, or what you will go through. Tonight, we will watch Christ as he agonizes in prayer under incredible pressure in the Garden of Gethsemane in Mark chapter 14. If you have a Bible, please turn it to Mark chapter 14. And hopefully you've got an outline and you can follow along because there'll be some other scriptures that we'll refer to that are be on that outline as we walk through this passage. Understand Mark chapter 14, verse 32 through 36. And your Bible's there and follow along if you would because now it's Thursday evening and it's very late. The Lord and his men had just enjoyed the last Passover celebration. And they just initiated the first communion service. So that's what's happened. He's just announced that he's going to be betrayed. Judas the betrayer has already left the room to go further his Passover plot. Uh, Christ in humility has washed the men's feet. And in pride the men have boasted about who's the greatest. Christ taught his men the entire upper room discourse, which is John chapter 13 all the way to 17. That's already happened. They've left the upper room. They're traveling toward the garden. And as they travel toward the garden, you know what he says? He says, you're all going to betray me. You're all going to flee. You're all going to run away. And Peter, you're going to be the worst. You're going to deny me three times. And all this is going on as they now arrive to the garden. Interesting enough, they have arrived. And the pressure of now what Christ is about to face comes crushing down on him. Understand, this is crucial. Maybe you don't understand this. Out of the 89 chapters of the Gospels, there's 89 chapters in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Out of those 89, 29 are directed at the last week of Jesus Christ. So 29 out of those 89 are all focused on the last week of Christ. And out of those, 13 of those chapters are focused on the last evening of Christ. This Thursday night to Friday. 13 chapters. And understand, the Spirit of God wants you to know what happened this night because it is absolutely life-transforming. So take a look at these verses, if you would, verses 32 to 36, and let me read them, and you read silently. They came to a place, verse 32, named Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, Sit here until I have prayed. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be very distressed. And troubled. 
And he said to them, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch. And he went a little beyond them and fell to the ground and began to pray that if it were possible, the hour might pass him by. And he was saying, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Let's pray together, shall we? Father, we'd ask that you would open up our eyes, open up our hearts, and that we might see Christ in a way that we have never seen him before as he exposes his heart in this incredible moment in history. We pray, Father, that it wouldn't just be knowledge, but it would be your very person that impacts us tonight. And Father, we'd ask that you would work in the hearts of those who don't know you and then those of us who do, that you would actually transform us and make us more like your son. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Take a look at point number one, the place of prayer over the coming cross. The place of prayer. Look at verse 32, would you? We love our Bibles here. Look at verse 32. It says, they came to a place called Gethsemane. The Gospel of John calls Gethsemane a garden, letting us know that it was more than a grove of trees and dirt. The idea of the disciples falling asleep there also lets us know it was probably more than a grove of trees. And understand the city is very crowded. And if you understand uh, international cities, especially in the Middle East, you understand a lot of people are closed in on the city and they'll have gardens outside the city that they keep. And this may be the case here on the Mount of Olives. This garden is kept by someone and it's a place of retreat for Christ. They're growing probably fruits and vegetables there. It may be an evening place for sleeping So that's why the disciples are there. They could be in an outdoor, in a sense, area to rest that's covered from the weather, that kind of thing. And there's probably vegetables and fruit and all that kind of stuff. And obviously olives that are used for production, for selling, etc. And they could sleep there. And so, sadly, what we know about this garden as well is that Judas, the betrayer, knew where Gethsemane was. Look at John 18, verse 2 there in your outline. It says, now Judas also, who was betraying him, knew the place. For Jesus had often met there with his disciples. This is a favorite place. They frequent it a lot. And so Judas knew that they were going to be there. Now he's gone and he's setting this whole thing in motion. And Gethsemane definitely was a favorite place and a private place that Christ could basically meet with his men to retreat from the crowds. And tonight it is the place where Christ experiences a divine struggle, incredible pressure. Verses 32 to 36 understand, are more than a time of difficult prayer. This is more than just a difficult prayer. This is a grief and a suffering that defies comprehension. If you think you know Christ, you're going to see something new about him tonight. It is open-heart surgery on Jesus Christ, and you will see things here about your God, about your Creator, about your Savior, about the Lord that you love that you haven't seen and will not see anywhere else. And tonight, if you're willing, you'll be challenged to move beyond a superficial knowledge of Christ, which is so common today in so many churches, not here. But you're going to see Christ's glory and his person. You're going to see his passion and his attributes. You're going to see a new, deeper, intimate way who he really is. And hopefully, tonight, you'll actually grow closer to Christ. Understand, Christ is beyond our understanding, but he is knowable in a very intimate way. And this moment in the garden is the most revealing moment to see Christ for who he really is. What's happening during this second greatest agony ever is Christ, who is God incarnate, 
is going to anticipate God's wrath being poured out on him. He knows what's coming. Christ, who is perfectly holy, is readying himself to become sin for us. The perfect holy God is now going to have horrible, rotten, rebellious sin, in a sense, laid on him. And Christ, who is eternally one with the Father for all of eternity, one with him, is going to be somehow, somehow separated from him. I cannot explain that to you. The reformers can't explain that to you. But somehow there was. Because Christ on the cross, what does he say? My God, my God, what? Why hast thou forsaken me? There was some form of separation. And so understand the pressure and sorrow is so great, it's going to come close to killing Christ before the cross. It's going to come close to killing Christ before the cross. Believe it or not, this conflict is actually staggering to the God-man. Amazing. So number two in your outline, why Jesus expresses the priority of prayer over the coming cross. The priority of prayer. We have the place of prayer, now the priority of prayer. Verse 32, take a look at it. They came to a place named Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here until I've prayed. They came, that's referring to Jesus and the 11. Judas is gone already, and he is working on his plot to arrest Christ. Probably near the entrance of the garden, he speaks to the 11, and he leaves eight of them at the entrance of the garden. And he takes three of them with them. He speaks with purpose. He tells them to stay there. And then he's going to go to war. And his men are going to go to sleep. It's a really sad moment for the disciples. While they're snoring, Jesus Christ is engaged in his greatest battle. And by the way, it is his greatest battle. You know what his first battle was, right? You know what happened in his first battle. His first battle was when he battled Satan in the wilderness. Remember that? He's out there in the wilderness, and he's tempted by Satan for 40 days and nights about not eating and all the temptations that came with that. And then the second battle where Satan overtly tempts Christ is Matthew 16, overtly, where Christ tells his men he's going to die. And Peter says, no way, you're not going to die. And he says, oh, Peter, you're not speaking God's will. Get behind me. What? Satan. Okay, so he's motivating that. The third battle is right here, the worst one of all. The parallel account to this moment in Luke chapter 22, verse 53, is but this hour and the power of darkness are yours. And the Greek language literally says, this is the hour of the power of the darkness. And what he's saying is that those definite articles tell us that this is a specific tack of Satan himself. And some believe this is the final effort of Satan to keep Christ from the cross. In the garden, Satan hopes to drive Jesus to say to the Father, I can't do it, or I won't do it. John MacArthur says this, quote, And if Satan succeeds at keeping Christ from the cross, then hell is the only place where people will ever live forever. Heaven will be empty. God's word will be untrue. The promise of salvation a lie, and Satan will be the true sovereign, end quote. This is the great battle that Christ is facing, and it's about the cross. So he goes to prayer and the enemy's pouring on Christ his greatest temptation, and the crushing weight of the cross and what's going to happen there is now falling on Christ. Hey, wait, wait, Christian, come on, pay attention. What happens at the cross? When you look at Christ, you see him be resolute, do you not? I mean, he's unfazed. He goes through the whole torture and all the things that he goes through and the six trials and all that he experiences, and he is resolute. But right here, he's not resolute. 
It is this prayer, this time, where he becomes resolute to do his Father's will. But he is feeling the weight of what's coming at this moment. And the desertion of his closest friends is imminent. One of his own, Judas, has orchestrated a scandalous betrayal. So look at verse 32. Jesus pours out his soul and he says, sit here until I've prayed. And get this, Jesus needs to intimately connect with the person he has enjoyed perfect oneness with for all eternity, the Father. Leading to number three in your outline, the purpose of prayer. The purpose of prayer. We've had the place, the priority, now the purpose of prayer. Look at verse 33, the first half. He took with him Peter and James and John. There's a definite article with each name, so it tells us that he named them specifically. The three had been selected previously. They were there with the raising of Jairus' daughter from the dead. They were uh, there uh, when, when Christ was transfigured in Mark chapter 9. They, with Andrew, received the teaching of the end of the world in Mark 13. But why did he leave the eight at the front and bring three with him? Well, let me give you three reasons that come out of implication and come out of the text itself. First in your outline, three reasons why he took these three with him is to have the support of intimate friendship. When you're going through a tough time, do you want friends around you, yes or no? Come on, yes you do. Jesus is God, but he's also man. He's 100% God, 100% man, 100% God, 100% human. And he felt the need for companionship, the desire for friendship and the hope, the support that he needed during deep trial. Listen, Christ not only required food and drink and clothing and shelter and sleep, but he also desired human fellowship. So the God-man invites the three to remain close to him. Close to him. His encouragement for strength as he's overwhelmed by the greatest pressure that Christ has ever experienced. These three have seen the glories of the transfiguration, and now they're going to see the agony, the agony in his, of his soul, the outpouring of his heart. Why does he have only these three? You know, secondly, in your outline, to grow by learning a truth to be recorded. These three were chosen to learn a lesson, to see how important it is to pray so they'll be triumphant in temptation. And sadly, they learn it the way I best learn, which is through failure. All right? They didn't really succeed at their test here. They learned the lesson by failing to pray and then falling to temptation. And they're going to learn out of the disaster of their prayerlessness just how difficult it will be. They, maybe you forgot. They just declared themselves the champions who would never leave Christ. They just declared themselves the ones who were going to be loyal to Christ no matter what. And yet, they're the ones who fall asleep during his life and death battle. They fall asleep. And they're going to learn the lesson of just how important it is to pray that spiritual strength and victory only come through the dependent. And, and you've got to think about it, right? Obvious truth here. Are you with me? If Christ himself needed to pray in the face of his greatest battle, who are we to say that we don't need to pray? If Christ needed to pray, how much more do we need to pray? To make certain we get it, Jesus commanded them in verse 34, the second half, remain here and keep watch. Jesus gives his men a continual command here stay awake spiritually be alert be ready for when you don't pray you are not prepared for temptation and you're not prepared for trial one more time when you don't pray you're not prepared for temptation and you're not prepared for trial you need to pray so christ desired friendship number two to teach his men and for them number three or thirdly to later function as leaders in order to influence others he had the three leaders of the 12 come with him these are the guys who influenced everybody else. These are the guys, the leaders of the 12, that they had to learn an important lesson. 
in order to pass that truth on. Peter, James, and John are the three main leaders. They're the main influences of others. And so Jesus says, come to me because we have something to learn. And when you learn it, you can teach others and you can record it for us today. The reason we know this so well is because they were there. And so they can help us. And what are they going to learn? Now, this is mind-blowing. This is the part that we wanted to get to. You've had the place of prayer, the priority of prayer, the purpose of prayer. Number four, the divine pressure over the coming cross. This is what most Christians don't see. This is what most people miss in this passage. As Jesus is going off to pray, verse 33 says, He began to be very distressed and troubled. You might want to circle those in your Bible if you write in your Bible. Distressed and troubled. Verse 34, And he said to them, My soul is deeply grieved. You might want to circle that. Distressed, troubled, and grieved. To the point of death. Remain here and keep watch. Focus now on those three dramatic phrases. You see them there. First is distressed. Distressed. It comes from a verb. You know what this verb means? It means amazed. Amazed. Now what in the world could amaze the all-knowing God? Really? Uh, There's something the God-man has never experienced. There's an event that is completely alien to Christ about to happen. You've got to understand this. Are we familiar with sin, yes or no? Can I hear you say, answer me? Are you familiar with sin, yes or no? Jesus Christ never sinned. And yet he's about to bear sin. And this is amazing. Overwhelming. Distressing. In fact, it causes Jesus to be secondly troubled. You see it there in verse 33? Look at it, verse 33. Troubled. Troubled. It's a very strong term. It means to be anguished. Anguished to the level that cannot be comprehended. What is causing this? Judas' betrayal, the disciples' desertion, Israel's rejection, the coming unjust trials, the mockery, the scourging, the crucifixion or dying. Is that it? Well, those things do cause sorrow. But this amazing anguish is far more deep and it's far more painful to our Savior. What is it? Christ is anticipating his role as a sacrifice for sin. To become sin for you and for me. To bear our sin upon himself. This is holy God who is now about to bear our sin. This is completely alien. God has never known sin. Christ was temptable but could never actually sin because he was also 100% God and God can't sin. Christ is impeccable. He cannot sin. And Christians, we struggle with sin. And through our old nature, and though it's dead, and sin is so strong, the very memory of it and the nature of it affects us deeply, and which is why we struggle to do what's right and not sin. But that is not the same with our Savior. He, though he felt the intensity of temptation at a deeper level than any of us have ever been tempted because of his holy nature, of his sinless purity, of his total righteousness, of his perfect obedience here, Jesus struggled only because of the power of perfect holiness. Get this. God, the Father, 
wait, this is about you. This isn't about someone else. This is about you. God the Father is asking Christ to embrace our sin as a sin bearer. Not as a sinner, but a sin bearer. The wages of sin and to accept our punishment for sin. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Look at it in your outline, verse 21. He made him who knew no sin to become what? Sin. Look at Isaiah 53, verses 4 and 5. He would be pierced for our transgressions and crushed for whose? Our iniquities. Yeah, yeah, okay, Chris, I get it. Jesus died for me. No, think deeper, friends. You're missing it. The punishment for sin is not only death, but bearing God's wrath for sin. Does God hate sin? Yes or no? So the wrath that we deserve for our sin against God was was not a momentary expression of wrath. Um, Sometimes you dole out discipline, do you not, parents, to your children? You can admit it here. We're safe, you know, But sometimes we do that. But it's typically momentary, correct? And then it's over. That's not the wrath that Christ is about to bear. You need to understand this. You need to, we all kind of miss this. Because we deserve God's wrath poured out upon us for all eternity. Now wait, you're still not tracking with me. You deserve and I deserve to go to hell for eternity. Not for a day. Not once, forever and ever and ever. So when Christ is experiencing God's wrath, he's experiencing the wrath for your sin forever. So that eternity of wrath for you is being poured on Christ. Now get it, not just you, but every other believer who's ever lived and will ever live. All of those eternities of wrath are now falling on Christ. And is Christ God, yes or no? So this is God's wrath, correct? And as God, does Christ understand what wrath is? So Christ now understands what wrath is, and he understands that that wrath, for all the eternity of wrath for you and every Christian, the millions of Christians that have ever lived, is now going to fall on Christ. Can you imagine the agony of that moment? He gets it. He understands it. So when he bears God's wrath for sin, our sin, in our place, he's bearing an eternity full of wrath for every Christian, every believer that's ever existed, for every sinner he died for. He took that eternal wrath for the millions of believers whom he had chosen. He took a million eternities of wrath. Now you can begin to get an idea why Christ is experiencing, verse 33 there, amazed, trouble, anguish. Now you get why he's struggling so great. This is a divine, holy pressure that you and I will never experience. But it is a holy pressure that our Savior bore for you. It was so overwhelming. Look at verse 34. He's deeply grieved. Look at verse 34. And he said to them, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch. 
Deeply grieved describes the action of being surrounded by sorrows, surrounded by grief. The Greek word deeply grieved here is perilipos, which means peri, which means surround. It means perimeter or periphery. It's telling us that Christ is engulfed in this grief. He's engulfed in this emotion. He's engulfed in this pressure. It is so bad that Jesus says, and this is God speaking God's word so we know it's true. It is so hard on him. Look at what the text says. Look at your Bible. Christ is grieved to the point of what? What's it say? Come on, answer me. The point of death. He's about to die. Christ has reached the very limit of pressure, the limit of emotion, the limit of grief and distress, the terrible anguish. He's about to truly physically die. You say, are you sure? Yes. The Bible tells us that he's about to die at this moment. It is so bad. Luke 22 tells us it is so intense on his body that God actually begins to sweat drops of blood. That's Luke 22, verse 44. And being in agony, he was praying very fervently and his sweat became like drops of blood falling upon the ground. It's called hematitrosis. Under intense stress, the capillaries burst and they inflate and they explode and the blood comes out of the sweat glands. This is the maximum amount of stress that anyone can handle. The pressure is so great that the father actually sends an angel to rescue Jesus at this moment. He does. He tells us there in Luke 22, verse 43, at this moment, he might have bled to death. He might have died from the stress had he not sent an angel to strengthen Christ. And he strengthens him at this moment. It's that intense. So how could our Savior not be deeply grieved? Not only is our Jesus perfectly holy, but he's about to bear the ugliness of our sin. Jesus is God, so our Lord knows exactly the justice of God's wrath against sin, and now he's about to have a million eternities worth of God's righteous wrath poured out on him. He knows what's coming. So how could he not be deeply grieved to the point of death? For when in all eternity past, Jesus has been perfectly one with the Father. We don't understand this, but understand he's one with the Father in perfect communion, perfect relationship, perfect fellowship, perfect intimacy. It's all perfect. But now for the first time, for the first time ever, somehow there's going to be a separation, some form of separation because why? Are you ready? Your sin. Your sin. On Christ. Christian, Jesus Christ did all of this for you. He is going through this agony for your sin. And in the midst of this battle, Jesus commands his closest friends, verse 34, take a look at it, remain here and keep watch. What did they hear? Fifthly, in your outline, they hear the plea over the coming cross. The plea, the pressure of the cross is now the plea. In verse 35, he went a little beyond them and fell to the ground and began to pray that if it were possible, this hour might pass him by. He goes Beyond the three in the garden, Luke tells us that it's about a stone's throw away from them. And the four Gospels tell us that we understand Jesus first went to his knees and then he fell on his face. They're watching him. And Christ goes about a stone's throw away and then he falls on his knees and then he falls on his face. And the Greek word fell there is a descriptive and perfect capturing a vivid, vivid seeing him falling. The three saw him. What do you think they felt? as he collapses to the ground. 
Can you imagine what they, were, what they saw and the anguish they saw on his face? Does Jesus cry or feel sorry for himself? No, he prays. And his prayer is not because he's fearing a dark destiny, not because of the physical suffering he'll endure, but rather the horror of being separated from his father. As he bears the sins of the world, he himself is about to become the object of the holy wrath of God against our sin. And in this prayer, he's anticipating his coming cry, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He's anticipating that. But what does Jesus ask here? Look at verse 35. Look at it. Look at verse 35. He became to pray, began to pray that if it were possible, this hour might pass him by. He's asking, can this hour pass me by? He's asking the father, is there another way? Can I pass on bearing the weight of sin? Can I pass on bearing your just wrath for the sins? Can I pass on breaking oneness in some manner with the Father? Can I? And the hour is coming. Your chosen time. It's nine hours away. He knows it's coming very, very soon. Can I fulfill my messianic mission any other way? Can I accomplish redemption any other way? And he continues to pray, number six in your outline, the perfect petition over the coming cross. Verse 36, it tells us that as he was saying this prayer, he says, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Look what he says. First, he gives just three keys. First is intimacy. Abba, Father. Abba means daddy. If you lived in Hawaii, guess what grandpa means? Grandpa means cuckoo. I have a grandson in Hawaii, and I am his cuckoo, which is very fitting. But understand, Abba is a, a term of familiarity. No Jew would ever call God his father, but here between the persons of the Trinity, there's intimacy, affection, intimacy, and oneness, and affection. And in order to glorify God with this kind of unity, it's what we Christians are to pursue in our spouses with our brothers and sisters of Christ and our church family. This unity and our Lord calls upon this intimacy from the Father, Abba, Father, as if pleading for that intimate love and unity to rescue him. And so the petition, secondly, is all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. All things are possible. Yes, that's true. But God could not allow Christ to miss the cross. It is the eternal plan of God for this to occur. In fact, Jesus prays, all things are possible. Then he adds, remove this cup. That's a problem. Do you understand what remove this cup is? It's not removing a cup at the table. Cup is representative of the the wrath of God. And if Christ doesn't go to the cross, then Satan wins. Heaven is empty. Hell is full. The Bible isn't true. God's promises are lies, and there's no salvation for anyone. He's got to go to the cross. God's not going to go back on his word. And he says, without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin. There needs to be a final, sufficient, acceptable sacrifice. Who? It's Jesus. And he wants this cup removed, and the cup is the cup of wrath. And he even asked his men earlier, can you drink the cup that I'm about to drink? The cup which the Father has given me, shall I not drink it? And Christ is about to drink the cup of wrath, and he soon does on the cross, just hours away. Charles Spurgeon said it best. It says, he seems as if hell were put into a cup. Christ seized it. And in one tremendous draft of love, he drank damnation dry. He took it all. Jesus has to drink the cup of wrath coming from his father. That's something he's never experienced before, resulting in his anguished petition. But amazingly, Christ responds with thirdly in your outline. Write this one down. You've got to know it. Submission. Submission. Verse 36 to the end. At the very end, he says, yet not what I will, but what you will. 
This is unbelievable. It's, it's incredible. Jesus is stressed to the point of death. His anguish, he's troubled deeply, emotionally. But different than our day, Christ says, are you ready? Wait, are you ready? He says no to his own emotions. Wow. Christians, you're to say no to your feelings. You're to obey even when you don't feel like it. You're to obey even when you have no feeling. Feelings do not drive obedience, and Christ proves the highest degree here. We don't follow our feelings. You're to follow God, His Word, even when you feel like you're going to die. Jesus says no to His desires, no to His thinking, and reaffirms to His Father, I want what you want first. I want what you will. I want your Word Christ lives submissively to the Father. Can I hear an amen to that? Yeah, what did he say at age 12? I must be about my Father's business. Early in his ministry, he said, my food is to do the Father's will. In John 6, he said, I've come from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me in John 6. Now the greatest act of submission, the greatest act of obedience, he takes on the full choice, the full chalice of man's sin and God's wrath, knowing it means separation from his Father, knowing it will then basically expose him to sin, knowing that it will in a sense, have caused him to bear the wrath of God, but he's going to do it, and he's going to do it for you. So, number one in your outline, Jesus knew pressure. The next time you feel stressed, would you remember this moment in Christ's life? Remember what he went through. Remember that he experienced something that we'll never even come close to. We'll never even come close to the kind of anguish and stress that Christ went through at this moment. Not only does he understand what you're going through, but he has gone far beyond what you could ever experience in this life. And what does he say to you? What does he say to you, Christian? What does he say to you, non-believer? He says this, Matthew 11, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you what? Rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, and I am gentle and humble of heart. You'll find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Stop fighting. Some of you are going, you know what, I, I, I just, I don't know God, I don't know Christ. You need to surrender. You need to say, Lord, I, 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 don't, I can't do this. I can't save myself. You have to rescue me. Open my eyes, open my heart. Help me to see you. I hate my sin. Turn from your sin and put your whole hope on Christ. The sin that separates you from God that will condemn you forever can be dealt with on Christ, but you have to put your life in his hands. You have to say in your heart of hearts, I exchange all that I am for all that he is. Be that person. Do that tonight. Cry out for his mercy. Cry out for him to open your heart so you can surrender to him. Christians aren't just those who pray a prayer, walk an aisle, or sign a card. They have exchanged their life for Christ. They have. Turn to Christ. Come to him. Listen to him. Follow him. Don't listen to what I say. Listen to what he says and follow Christ. Number two, Jesus helps us understand our emotions. Understand that he expresses distress and anguish and deep grief. And there's times of sorrow when it's right to express those emotions, but never without trust in God. It's never right nor pleasing to God for yelling matches, for screaming at others, for sorrow without trust. Never. That kind of emotion is selfish and sinful. On the other hand, Allow Christians to go through grief and loss at the death or departure of loved ones. Allow believers to wrestle with God and go through times of sober dependence. There are dark waters in this life. Would you agree? There are seasons where 
It's not necessarily we're filled with joy at that point to the extreme where we're happy and giddy, but there are, there are heavy times. But in the heart of a believer, you can trust God. You can say, even in this dark time, I can trust you, like the psalmist. Number three, Jesus is a model of submission. Submission is a quality that is manifested in families, but understand all of us are going to have to go through issues of submission. Singles, your big test will be for you to say and mean that if the Lord wills and actually trust his timing for that person that they might come along. It always cracked me up as a college pastor. You know, what are, they, what are the girls looking for? They're looking for a guy who's 6'2", blonde hair, really big and strong and drives a Porsche, you know. And it always cracked me up what they end up with. You know, he's four foot two, he's balding and drives a Vespa. You know what I'm saying? And so it was really interesting. But young families, we have to trust him and submit to him concerning children and our home and the right job and older couples, you know, with our health and, and where the Lord's going to lead us and whether we're always going to, you know, have a spouse. They might go home before we do. And older families, it's, it's your schooling and the college and the grandchildren and if Christ experience a near-death agony, can we say, yet not what I will, but you will, Lord? Can we trust him with those things that are before us and say, yeah, I trust you? I believe he wants you to pursue a heart of submission. To say in all aspects of life, even this week, even this night, Lord, I don't know, but I want what you want. And wherever you take me, I will trust you. If Christ could trust his father in this agony, you can trust him with whatever agony you're going through. Amen to that? You can. And four, Christ's agony should result in our adoration. Can we not, beloved friends, can we not weep for joy over the, what Christ did for us? How can we not love him more for what he went through? Because the, he's pointing to the cross. He's telling us what he's, going to, what he's going to go through for us. He was your substitute. He bore your sin. He paid your price. He suffered from God's forever wrath for you and for me. And he chose to be separate to some degree from the Trinity, though he, he, he was perfectly one for all eternity. And a moment so painful, he cried out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Christ did all that in order to free you from eternal punishment and your sin so you could be with him forever. Amen? That's what he did. Will you worship him? Will you adore him? Will you thank him? And most importantly, your worship should be you'll live for him.